of uh, this part of our worship service, we are going to continue on in our first and second Thessalonian sermon series. And as you can see, the title of the message is we're going to focus much more on uh, the return of Jesus. And the title of the message is uh, Jesus's death. It really does bring about death to all deaths. His sacrifice, which he didn't have to do, but his sacrifice of love for us and a commitment to glorify the Father has brought upon uh, many benefits, but one of the benefits is it brings death to all deaths. Uh, no longer are, does death have a final say in our lives, but there is hope beyond the grave. And not only the death of our biological existence, but even the death of all deaths in terms of any many deaths that we do experience, any causes of grief, anxiety, things that uh, setbacks, devastations in life, uh, even in those areas, Jesus' death represents death to the stings of all those type of mini deaths as well. So <clears throat> as far as this passage, uh, just to provide a little bit more context, um, First Thessalonians, there are some issues uh, that Paul tries to address, but probably the number one issue is a lot of the Thessalonians, they are very confused about the second coming of Jesus. And believe it or not, uh, this isn't going to be some weird sermon about what's going to happen, and I'm not going to predict a particular date in the future and get all weird and cult-like. But the second coming of Jesus is a very, very important idea, teaching, event that you see throughout Scripture, especially in the New Testament. And unfortunately, uh, as a church, especially in our modern-day context, and that's why I really love Gina's prayer where we fill our houses with trinkets, where we fill our schedules and our minds with entertainment and all these other things to distract us, we tend to forget the ultimate purpose of life and how all these things are going to come to its summation through Jesus' return. And we don't talk about that enough at church. So this week, we're going to talk about that a little bit more. Next passage, Paul also addresses this. So that's going to be the topic of next week's sermon before we conclude with the very last passage of 1 Thessalonians. And then we're going to move into 2 Thessalonians, which again, one of the primary topics, themes there is the return of Jesus. Now for the Thessalonians at this point, like I mentioned, they're very confused. In fact, they're grieving because, <clears throat> remember, this was written 2,000 years ago. And 2,000 years ago, the believers of Jesus, they genuinely and sincerely believed that Jesus can come back any moment, any day. It felt very imminent. There was a sense of urgency. But then the problem was for the Thessalonians and for other believers, as they were living their lives, they're wondering, well, if Jesus is going to come back tomorrow, then what should I do with my work? Should I continue to be productive? And we kind of saw hints of that last week. And then the other problem is, what happens to my loved ones who pass away? Uh, my father, my mother, my uncle, my aunt, my kids, they just passed away. And when Jesus returns, what does that mean? Is Jesus somehow going to forget our recently deceased loved ones? So they were actually grieving because they had a lot of confusion about how does Jesus' return actually affect and bring hope, not only to themselves, but specifically to those who have recently passed away. So Paul is addressing this. He recognizes that they're a little confused. They feel like maybe when Jesus returns, he's going to neglect those who passed away. So they have all these different thoughts. They're grieving. 
They feel very vulnerable. And Paul addresses this by talking about there is actually an order. There is actually some type of scheme in terms of what happens after a Christian dies. And I know for many of us, we have a very vague understanding of that. If I were to just pick on anybody who's worshiping with us right now and ask you and put you on the spot, what happens exactly after a Christian dies? <clears throat> we'll probably have a very vague understanding. Uh, what happens to your body? What happens to your physical body? Where does your heart, your soul, your spirit, where does it go? Um, I think all of us will recognize that as Christians, there is life beyond the grave. That's when eternal life begins. But then we may be wondering, well, what happens to our physical bodies? Actually, I've never really thought about that. Um, and one of the things that we see in the New Testament is there is a particular order and scheme. Uh, so immediately after a Christian dies and his biological existence is no longer in effect, so to speak, uh, his or her body is not resurrected. And he or she, I guess her spirit or her soul, is now separated from the body, physical body, but is present with Jesus Christ. We are still united with Christ. And this is something that we talked about, union with Jesus because of the gospel, is no matter what happens in life, no matter what happens after life, we are always now united with Christ. Whether it's during the highs and lows of your life or whether it's through death and life. Literally, no matter what, we are united with Christ. Our soul, our spirit, our heart, our metaphysical existence is now bound with Christ. However, it doesn't mean that our physical bodies have yet been resurrected. At this point, we are still separated from our physical bodies. And if you want some more details, you can see 1 Corinthians chapter 15, um, where it really lays it out in more specificity. But our physical bodies... We do not become reunited with our physical bodies until the final day of resurrection. And that is when Jesus returns. When Jesus returns, that is the day when everything is going to be made new. Not only will we be reunited with our physical bodies, but our physical bodies will be made glorious. So it's not going to be subject to our physical bodies now. I know many of us, we take great pride in exercising, being healthy, maintaining a diet, and I applaud you. I think those are godly attributes in some ways. <clears throat> but when we get our resurrected bodies, it is going to be beyond anything that we've ever seen. It's not just going to be a return to the way Adam and Eve were, but it's going to be what they were supposed to be. Our bodies are going to be fully glorified. And it's going to be amazing. It's going to be awe-inspiring. And not only will our bodies be resurrected and made new, but Jesus is going to make everything new. The new heavens and the new earth. Everything is going to be in its glorified state. Everything is going to be oozing with just clear evidence that God is the creator of everything that we see. And that everything is going to be no longer tainted by the consequences of our evil sin. And it's going to be a glorious day. So Paul is trying to let the Thessalonians know. That the people that have been deceased, they are with Jesus right now. Don't feel like you have to grieve like other people grieve. In fact, they are with Jesus. And when Jesus comes back, they're not gonna, he's not going to forget about them. But Jesus will be sure to resurrect their bodies so that their physical bodies will be reunited with their spirit. And at that point, we will enjoy 
the new heavens and the new earth. So we're going to unpack some of this, um, not so much as far as the technicalities of the future resurrection, but more so how does all these things that we just talked about, how should they actually impact our everyday lives? Because it is a very futuristic, it almost feels like I'm describing some fairy tale or some movie. But really, the importance is, how does this actually impact the way I currently live, the way I currently relate with God, the way I currently love my family members, the way I currently work, the way I currently do my everyday Monday through Saturday lifestyle. <clears throat> so we're going to talk about that a little bit more because it is extremely relevant. <clears throat> Let me pray for us one more time, and then we'll go right into the bulk of the sermon. <clears throat> Father, we just want to thank you for your word, that it fills us with so much hope, because we know that all these blessings, all these promises are guaranteed because of what your son Jesus has done. It's not because of our own ability. It doesn't depend upon how holy we can be, or how many quiet times we can do, or how consistent we are with our tithes. It all is contingent upon your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you so much. And I just pray that this hope would truly convict our hearts so that it changes the way we live our everyday lives. Um, just like our sister Gina prayed, we repent, we confess, we are destitute. We need you. We need you to intervene. So speak to us. Breathe new life, new hope into all of us. We thank you and we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. <clears throat> Before we read the passage, or actually we'll probably just take the passage verse by verse, but I do want to turn our attention to also the phone number that you see on our screen. If you have any prayer requests, prayers, any questions about the sermon, feel free to text those anonymously. We love to address and reflect upon all those things during our worship service. So let's get right into what Paul writes. So um, he really focuses on two things. He focuses on, he knows that the Thessalonians are discouraged, so he focuses on the, there is a future hope. There is something that we can look forward to. And then the second thing that he emphasizes is this future hope that we're looking forward to, it actually makes an impact on the way we live our everyday lives. So <clears throat> he writes, but we do not want you to be uninformed. So the Thessalonians, they are uninformed. They feel a little confused about what's going to happen in the future brothers about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who do not have hope so basically paul senses that they are grieving over the people who have been recently deceased and they are grieving as if there's no hope just like non-believers who don't have the hope of jesus christ so paul is writing this to inform them so that he can give them hope for since we believe that jesus died and rose again and again, if you've been part of our sermons, you, you recognize whenever you see the word for or because or since, we know that it's very important. Because the reason why Paul is saying you can have hope in the midst of your grieving is for this reason, because of this. It's not some, I'm just trying to make you feel better, but there is actually a reason. There's something grounding our hope. And he points to this in verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. So Paul is saying, don't worry about those people who were recently deceased. Because of what Jesus Christ has done, 
he will be guaranteed to take them and you in his return when he makes everything the way it should be. And here I just want to focus once again, Paul mentioning explicitly, for since we believe, what about Jesus? That Jesus was a great teacher, that Jesus was very compassionate, that Jesus was just a very loving guy. All those things are true, but the thing that Paul points to over and over and over again is the fact that Jesus died and he resurrected. And here at Uptown, here in our community, yes, there are many wonderful things about Jesus Christ. He was a great teacher. Yes, his example was very exemplary, not to be too redundant. Yes, he performed a lot of miracles. Yes, he was very loving. All these wonders, he was very wise in the ways that he dealt with political drama. But the thing that we celebrate and the thing that we focus on more than anything else is the fact that Jesus died for our sins and that Jesus resurrected. And this is supremely important because whenever we come before God, even in this worship service, and I don't care how long you've been a Christian, I don't care if you have a seminary degree. I don't care if you've been to a bunch of mission trips. I don't care if you are the son of the best church planter or whatever. Every single one of us, without exception, when we come into God's presence, we must first realize how sinful we are. We must first realize how holy He is. We must first realize that there is an infinite gap between His holiness and His standards and where we are. Not only are we finite creatures, but we are wickedly sinful. And again, I just love Gina's prayer where she specifically mentions different symptoms of our sin. How yes, when we think about our lives, even though God is using 2020 to bring us into repentance, instead we are becoming more complacent. We are becoming much more driven and obsessed and engaged with our work. We are wallowing in our misery and focusing on ourselves. Um, like we mentioned last week's sermon, we are so focused on the painting and we neglect the painter. We do these different ways of sinning and rebelling against God. And this isn't just something for non-Christians, even Christians within this church. All of us, we are sinners. We distort, we neglect, we suppress God's character and His involvement. He is constantly trying to intervene in our lives. He is constantly trying to remind us and overwhelm us with His love. But we are constantly resisting, suppressing, rejecting that. And that is why we are fooling ourselves if whenever we do a church service, whenever we do a small group gathering, whether we, whenever we do a devotional, whenever we work, Whenever we engage time with our family, every aspect of our lives, we must be reminded, wow, there is that infinite chasm, gap between this holy God and us. And the only thing that bridged that gap is the death of Jesus. He sacrificially, willingly, in one of the most costly, probably the most humiliating ways, gave up his life so that our sin can be cleansed and forgiven. So that when God, this holy God, looks at us, He doesn't look at us and be thinking, oh, 
I don't know, you have some uh, faults there, you have some problems there, you made some mistakes there. Ooh, you don't look like you have that addiction there. You have this tendency that I'm not pleased with. No, no, no. When God looks at every single one of us who submit to the gospel of Jesus, all he sees is the precious, blameless, pure blood of Jesus that's covered every single one of us. And because of that, he has intense pride and joy over all of us even though we still struggle with our own sinful tendencies. But Paul mentions, not only did Jesus die, not only did he wipe that slate clean, but he resurrected. Not only has he made sure that we have a rightful standing before God, but Jesus' resurrection means that now we have power to live rightly the way God wants us to live. And he does this by virtue of giving us his very own spirits. So yes, many of us, I know this past week may have been very crummy. For myself, this past week was very trying. Yes, I got over the cold-like symptoms, but I just had constant nausea, upset stomach, and it was just a very, I just felt very fragile, just very weak physically. And yeah, coming into this worship service, there are parts of me that feels like maybe I wasn't prepared enough. Maybe I didn't do enough things this past week where I can feel like I want to worship God. And I'm sure many of us, we feel that way. A lot of times our hope and our disposition before God is dependent upon how our weeks have been or how we are doing, whether it is physically, spiritually, emotionally, productively in production or whatever. But this verse reminds us Our disposition before God, our trust before God is not dependent on any of those things. We could have had the worst of all weeks. This morning could have been one of the worst mornings that you've had. But the fact remains, Jesus died for us. Our slate is wiped clean. Jesus resurrected, so now we are filled with the Spirit. And now we have the power, because of what the Spirit is doing in our hearts, to give Him the worship, to be able to live rightly, So that when we do respond to stresses at work, stresses in our family relationships, stresses in loneliness, or whatever, we can actually overcome those things because we are not depending on our power, but depending upon the Holy Spirit that is working in us. So Paul is saying everybody who submits to this gospel, not only has your past been secured, not only has your present been secured by virtue of the Spirit dwelling in you and you being united with Christ, But even your future, when Jesus comes back, he will remember all those who submit to his gospel. Uh, The other thing that he mentions, well, we'll continue to read on, but there's another thing that he mentions. Um, Verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And basically Paul spelling out some of the details Because the Thessalonians are a little confused. Does it mean that Jesus will neglect those who were previously deceased? And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. The deceased will be the ones who resurrect first. We're not going to perceive them. So don't worry about them. God will not forget about those people. And then Paul continues in verse 16. Again, four, another four. And whenever we see four, we should highlight this. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. The Lord himself is Jesus. Jesus will descend from heaven. And in some ways, 
Jesus is living in our hearts by virtue of his spirit. He is present with us. But in other ways, he is also sitting at the right hand of God's throne in the heavenly realms. And we see this, especially in Ephesians chapter 1. We see this, especially in Hebrews. And many of us may be wondering, what is Jesus doing right now? Uh, that's not really the topic of this sermon. But right now, what Jesus is doing is he's praying for us. He's interceding on our behalf. Even right now, you may feel vulnerable. You may feel weak. You may feel like you're a failure. But not only are there people in your small group who's praying for you, not only as a pastor do I want to pray for you, but more importantly, we have Jesus Christ, the sovereign king of the universe, praying for you. But there will be a day, as verse 16 talks about, where Jesus will once again return. This is the second coming. This is the return of the king. That sounds like a movie title, but it really comes from this idea where Jesus will return and he will make all things new. We catch a glimpse of this in Philippians chapter 2. We catch a glimpse of this in Revelation 1, Revelation 19. When Jesus returns, let me remind us, you know, Jesus' first coming was as a little baby, right? In a, you know, cute little manger. I mean, it's technically not a manger, but Jesus comes as an innocent little infant, newborn in probably the most humble of beginnings. I mean, he's literally birthed into a place where animals eat to parents who are refugees or looking for some type of immigration. But when Jesus returns, he's not going to come as a humble little infant. But when Jesus returns, he's going to come as not only a glorious king, where we see his glorified body, but he's going to come to bring recompense. He's going to come with a sense, vengeance is mine. And that's why the passages I just mentioned, when Jesus comes back, he's depicted as the rider on the white horse. And some of us are thinking of Gandalf in Lord of the Rings because, you know, he's, he's white and he's glowing. And I think he also rides a white horse. And his entrance was very epic. The, the two towers, I think it was. Um, and when we think about these cinematic scenes where there's this epic entrance, whether it is Gandalf, or I think for, for the younger crowd, maybe it's the Marvel Cinematic Universe where Thor comes with such swagger in Wakanda. And you know Captain Marvel coming right at the point where, well, not to get too geeky, but you, you get the drift. And in all of these scenes, it shows that the people are in desperate, dire need of some type of relief. Whether it is Lord of the Rings, whether it is Infinity War or the Endgame or whatever. I mean, the Captain America scene, I think, is, is, is probably the, the pinnacle where all those portals... Okay, so sorry, I'll, I'll stop being so geeky. But the point is... This epic entrance of this amazing hero who has the capability of make all, make all things right, it comes at usually the point of our despair. In some ways, I feel like it's a very biblical theme. And there's no coincidence that it inspires some of these creative ways of, of uh, depicting these movie scenes. But Jesus' entrance 
it is similar to that, but it is truly the epic entrance of all entrances. When Jesus comes back, he will be that rider on the white horse. His eyes are going to be flaming with fire. His mouth out of his tongue will be a sword that darts forth to destroy all of his enemies. This Jesus is going to mean business. And when we see this Jesus come back, who is perfectly glorified, in his glorified state, it's going to be very terrifying, even for believers, as it says in Philippians chapter 2. Believers or non-believers, it doesn't matter. Every tongue will confess. When we see the appearance of this resurrected Jesus come back, it's not just, wow, Thor just looks so amazing, Gandalf looks so glorious. It is beyond those type of things. Those are pale shadows of the real thing. When we see Jesus, it doesn't matter if you grew up in the church or not. It doesn't matter if you're atheist or not. When we behold his glory and his majesty, every tongue will confess, I know instinctively that person is Lord. Every knee will bow instinctively. It doesn't matter who you are. You're going to recognize this figure, fearsome figure, is worthy of my reverence. We will all fall prostrate before this Jesus. It's going to be a terrifying thing. And that is what Paul is talking about. The Lord himself would descend from heaven. And when we think about this day, we're going to think it's going to be terrifying. And we're going to think, wow, this Jesus, this fearsome figure who is so awe-inspiring, is actually on my side. This Jesus came, is coming to rescue me. And we're going to understand at that point that the only reason why Jesus is on our side is not because we're holier than the next person. It's not because of all the tithes that we gave or all the mission trips that we've gone to. And again, tithing, mission trips, all those things are wonderful things, but they're not the ultimate things. The reason why Jesus, this fearsome figure, will be on our side is, again, because this Jesus died for us. This Jesus resurrected on our behalf. And those who submit to that truth are those for whom Jesus is going to return to bring us into glory. Apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus, when we see this fearsome figure come back, all of us should be rightfully terrified because none of us can stand up to the standards of His holiness. All of us are enemies, as it says very clearly in Scripture. Apart from the grace of Jesus, we are objects of His wrath. If we have not submitted to the gospel of Jesus, if we do not truly submit to the death and resurrection of Jesus, not just during the altar call, but really every hour of our lives. This Jesus is against us. Very terrifying thing. But it's only because we're covered in his blood. It's only because we are now united with him that this Jesus will be for us. Paul continues, For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a cry of a command, you may be wondering, a cry of command, what does that mean? With the voice of an archangel, and you're thinking, wow, now this is getting very kind of nerdy, 
kind of in the movie sci-fi realm. What does an archangel mean? And with the sound of the trumpet of God. And here I want to cluster these three phrases together. Because I think for most of us, we won't know what this means. Especially in isolation. A cry of a command. Voice of an archangel. The sound of a trumpet of God. Especially the last phrase. Whenever you see the sound of trumpet, it's usually not because in the biblical times people were into jazz or people were into music. Trumpet was... Uh, an instrument of war. Uh, whenever you go into war, you blare the trumpet, letting people know that our army is about to invade and our army is victorious. When we think of a cry of command, again, it's a military language. The voice of an archangel, again, this is all of this has military warlike undertones. So these three, three phrases combined, what, is, what Paul is really trying to say is when Jesus returns, it will be glorious, but it will be very warlike. And it is going to be a very victorious setting where Jesus will finally vanquish his enemies. But more importantly, the thing that we are going to experience victory over is not so much the enemies, but it really is the victory over our sin. That is the true ultimate problem. So when we think about the Lord coming back, a cry of command, voice of an archangel, the sound of trumpet of God. Yes, it is victorious, it is military-like, but the object that Jesus is trying to destroy and will destroy is our sin, our sinful tendency. And this is where I think we have tremendous hope for the future because all of us, like I alluded to earlier, and as our sister Gina prayed, aren't we so tired of our sin? Aren't we so tired time and time again of placing our hope in things that are so transient, so foolish, and that leave us dry? I mean, aren't we just tired of that? Even in our discipleship team, as we've been reading through the How People Change book, uh, we had our meeting yesterday, and we're just sharing with one another in our smaller groups, and every smaller group, it was so profound because we all shared how we all fall into the vicious cyclical cycle, cyclical pattern, not to be too redundant, of constantly falling into sin. Even our ability to trust in Jesus, even that is contaminated with our depravity because we basically look at Jesus as some kind of vending machine. We are so hopeless in our battle against sin. Not only is it utterly hopeless, but isn't it just so utterly tiring? Aren't you just so sick and tired of just how sin deceives us over and over again? We feel so enticed. We feel so hopeful. But after we get engaged in it, we recognize, wow, this is so devastating for me. This only sets me back. The pain only feels worse and this is that much more offensive to God. Aren't we so sick and tired of living like that? Aren't we so sick and tired of living our lives constantly resisting and being so aloof to the ways that God is trying to intervene? God is constantly trying to showcase His character, constantly trying to remind us of His love and His faithfulness and how we can place our trust in Him. But we are always so fixated on other things. 
Like I mentioned last week, we're so fixated on the pain. We're so fixated on our inadequacies, on our inabilities, our past experiences, of the circumstances. We're so fixated on how people are treating us unfairly. All these different things when God is just saying, focus on me. Look to me. Remember, I am with you. Not only is my character true, but I am present in your life. In your life. I am intervening. I am orchestrating these type of situations. And yes, it's not comfortable, but I'm doing this so that you can become more like Jesus, so that you can be more sensitive and eventually celebrate the ways that God is working in our lives. And time and time again, we resist that. And I am sick and tired of it. As I've been walking with some of you guys, whether it's our one-on-ones or whether it's our small group gatherings, I sense you guys are sick and tired of it. But what verse 16 talks about the voice of an archangel, a cry of a command, the sound of a trumpet of God, what this finalizes is that Jesus will once and for all vanquish the power of sin. Yes, with his original death and resurrection, our slates are wiped clean. We are no longer guilty, but we still struggle with sin. And we will continue to struggle with sin until we see Jesus face to face. And when we do see Jesus face to face at his return, That is when the power of sin no longer has any sway. We no longer struggle with it. And it will be a glorious thing. Our souls, we actually long for this more than anything else. I know many of us, we long for things like, I can't wait until my vacation. I can't wait until I get that promotion. I can't wait until I get married. I can't wait until I have kids. I can't wait until I have the house. I can't wait until X, Y, and Z. It is endless. But those cravings, they all are symptoms of our craving to simply be done away with sin and to be able to worship God. And what we do is we substitute that with all these little band-aids, all these little things that we think can give us temporary relief, and it only sets us back. Let me remind you, our greatest desire is to not only fully conquer sin, but to be able to truly worship God. And that will be made possible on the day of Jesus' return, where sin will be forever vanquished. Not only will our slates be wiped clean like he did 2,000 years ago, but on his return, the power of sin will have absolute no allure on any single one of us. So Paul talks about some of the future hope that we can be looking forward to. For the Thessalonians, and I think it's also very relevant for many of us as well. But Paul also shifts the attention a little bit to not only the future hope and what happened in the past, but how these different things can actually affect our everyday life. So let's continue. In the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ... I want us to focus the dead in Christ. The people who have been recently deceased, they are in Christ. Remember, in Christ is a signal to the concept of our union with Christ. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together. And with them, the people who have been recently deceased, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. 
What I want to emphasize here with the last two highlighted phrases, the dead in Christ, the dead who have been recently passed, they are still in Christ. And then us who are still alive, we will always be with the Lord. And what Paul is saying is the ultimate hope of our lives, of our death, of what happens after death, through and through is the fact that we are with Christ. We are united with Christ. It doesn't matter if your, your body is buried in the grave. They are still in Christ. It doesn't matter if we are still alive. We will always be with Christ. It doesn't matter. Life or death, those things do not separate what Jesus has done for us, which results in our union with Christ. We are always and forever with Christ. Through life, through death, and even within life, through the highs and through the lows, through our rebellion and through moments where we are being faithful, it doesn't matter. If you submit to what Jesus has done for you, that is secure. That will never be, that can never be reversed. And we talked about the importance of the union with Christ. Um, but in this passage, there is one specific aspect that I want to highlight. And that is, with our union with Christ, it essentially means that no longer do we live, but Christ is living in us. The Spirit is the one taking control of us, making us more like Jesus. All the things that Jesus has accomplished, all of His virtues, all the wonderful things, the heroic things, they are now attributed to us. We have His righteousness. We are one. And that's what I tried to show in the Venn diagram last week. It's not like we have our heart and we have the Spirit and throughout our lives we have to kind of navigate between reconciling between the two. No, no, it is... We have a dead, depraved heart that has been replaced with the Spirit. We are now united with Christ. Our identity is no longer ourselves, but it is in Christ. Um, it's a glorious, marvelous thing. And one aspect that I want to highlight here is when we are united with Christ and when the Spirit is influencing us, one way that I think the Spirit can influence us is giving us an eternal perspective of what our destiny is. This isn't wishful thinking that, oh, I hope one day Jesus will come back. I hope one day Jesus will remember me. I hope one day Jesus will finally conquer the power of my sin. Now, this is our destiny. This is written. That's why I said in the earlier verse, for this is a word of the Lord. This is God's promise to us. God hasn't failed on any one of his promises. And when we have this eternal perspective, this, our destiny in mind, it truly transforms the way we live our everyday lives. Uh, I gave the illustration a few weeks ago about my wedding preparation. And yes, it was very, a lot of Korean drama-like issues and tension. But because we knew that we were going to get married, it made that not only tolerable, but it kind of made it somewhat romantic. When we think about even myself right now, we're about to move to a new house in a few weeks. And yes, we're very, we're very much looking forward to the new house. And yes, we have a lot of packing to do. We have a lot of cleaning to do. There's a lot of things that we need to, you know, selling the house was not easy. But knowing that we have something to look forward to, it truly gives us hope and the motivation to be able to put the proper struggles that we experience in their perspective. It gives us not only motive, it's not a psychological thing merely, but it gives us the right attitude 
so that we have the strength to do these things. Similarly in our lives, if we know our destiny, as we talked about even in the earlier passage of Thessalonians, how God will make us blameless, holy, pure, fully loving, fully in the image of Jesus, then that makes our momentary struggles. It places them in its rightful context. It gives us hope even in our everyday situation. Um, I know all of this may still sound a little abstract, union with Christ, having an eternal perspective, uh, even the concepts of repentance and faith that we've been emphasizing over the previous weeks. So what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to read what somebody wrote in an email. Uh, Our sister Abby, actually, who's our children's director, and she's part of our discipleship team, and we've been reading through this book called How People Change. And I've had uh, the people in our team send me a response, a reflection on what they thought of chapter one. And I felt like there was a portion in her piece, I asked her for permission, so don't worry, that really in a very concrete, practical way brings all these ideas together, our union with Christ, how our identity is now in Jesus. Having an eternal perspective that shapes and gives hope to our everyday situation. The idea of repentance and how that is an everyday thing. The idea of placing our faith and our trust in God, how that is a cyclical thing. Uh, So let me just read this off. Hopefully this can inspire some of us to think of your own life. How can you apply these concepts in your life? How is the Spirit trying to lead you into repentance and greater faith, reminding you of your union with Christ and having an eternal perspective? Uh, So here, let me just read it verbatim. Uh, The book says that we need to understand that our life stories are being lived out within God's larger story so that we can learn to live each day with a gospel mentality. Uh, I just love that first sentence. Let me just read that again. The book says that we need to understand that our life stories, whether you're a single parent or whether you're a student or whether you feel like your life story feels like Groundhog's Day because of the pandemic, Every day feels the same way. Our life story are being lived out within God's larger story. There is a bigger purpose. There is an eternal perspective so that we can learn to live each day with a gospel mentality. Applying this to my life now, uh, Abby has started to work full-time as a teacher and it's all virtual and there is a steep learning curve very difficult. She's very exhausted, very stressed. Uh, So that's the context of this. Applying this to my life now, the Spirit has used this chapter to urge me to view my life within God's larger story. Recently, I have been working long hours each day to ensure I'm doing the best I can at my first full-time teaching job. I have a good relationship with my students, so I am motivated to work my hardest for the betterment of their education However, I am also motivated to work to improve myself in my career. This past week especially, I experienced many breakdowns because of how overwhelming this job has become. I think many of us, we can relate. Whether it is being overwhelmed with busyness or being overwhelmed with feeling lonely. Either way, there is all of us, we feel unsettled with life. And Abby articulates this well. As this is my first time planning and teaching grade 4 curriculum, My inexperience with the curriculum leaves me feeling insecure many moments throughout the week. 
I internalize these circumstances and call myself an inadequate and incompetent teacher. These titles I give to myself cloud my inherent identity as a child of God. And I think that's supremely important is we always cloud our identity as a child of God, whether it is feeling inadequate or incompetent or whether you're experiencing victories and you end up not thinking of yourself as a child of God who desperately needed the blood and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. But instead, you start feeling yourself up a little bit. Either way, as Abby shares, and I think many of us can relate, we cloud our fundamental identity of being a child of God who has been ransomed by the blood of Jesus. Although my identity as a teacher is an important part of how God has intended me to live, it is not healthy for me to root my sense of identity in my performance. Thus, I am reminded of how my obsession with my performance is a gap in my understanding of the gospel. This is where I forget the present grace and deny God the center seat in my life. As long as I am bound to sin, I will always have to battle sin, the battle for the thoughts and motives of the heart. And we see here, Abby is experiencing the process of repentance. She recognizes her sin. She recognizes that it is foolish for her to replace her identity as a child of God, her identity in Christ with other things. Moments of grace of where I am able to remember this, and this is where repentance leads to grace. I do not feel anxious about my performance and overwhelmed with fear of failure because I can trust in God's sovereignty and the joy in my permanent identity as a child of God. And here is the element of we need to trust God more. Repentance leads to greater trust, not in ourselves, but trust in God and what he has done for us. Thus, I am encouraged to celebrate the Lord regularly in my life in his daily provision of grace. And that last line, I feel like, is a definition of worship. When I said all of our hearts, we long to be done away with sin and we want to be able to worship God. What does worship mean? It means to be able to celebrate God's character and his involvement in our lives. And that's exactly what we see in Abby's instance. And I read that because, A, I was very encouraged and I was very edified. But I read that because I know these concepts of union with Christ, having an eternal perspective, repentance, faith. These concepts may seem very philosophical, abstract, may not seem very relatable, relevant to the way we live our everyday lives. But here is a perfect instance, example of how all these concepts are intermingling for an everyday problem that I think all of us can relate with. So as we close this sermon, I do want to encourage us as we think about this passage Yes, it's amazing what Jesus has done for us in the past, his death and resurrection. It's maybe equally amazing what Jesus is going to return with an epic entrance and how we are going to finally have victory over the power of sin. But all of this is because of the present reality that we are united with Christ. It doesn't matter whether we're dead or alive. It doesn't matter if you're rebelling against God right now or not. We are united with Christ. Our identity is grounded in what Jesus has done for us. And that makes all the difference, even as we cope with our everyday struggles. It leads us into repentance. It leads us into having greater trust in God. It leads us, therefore, to be able to worship God so that no matter what situations beset us, 
we can still celebrate that God is there. We can still celebrate that we are still united with Christ. Our destiny shapes the way we live today. Uh, so as we close, uh, I do want to give us an opportunity to respond. Uh, again, one of the appropriate ways to respond is to text away any prayers, any prayer requests, any questions. Um, another way of responding is through our offering as well. And uh, during the pandemic, our way of doing this is through the link. So feel free to utilize that link. Um, but yeah, at this point, I just want to give us an opportunity to just really reflect upon what the Spirit may be saying in our hearts. <clears throat> if we can all be in a posture of worship, of receiving and responding, whether you want to stand, uh, whether you want to bend your head, bow your head, uh, I just want us to have a moment. Uh, I think I've talked long enough to just be quiet before the Spirit and allow the Spirit, just ask the simple question, Holy Spirit, what are you trying to place on my heart right now? And I just want you to respond honestly, vulnerably with what the Spirit is trying to do at this moment.